Hello and welcome. Here we are again for episode 5 of The Thirst Time. The aim of The Thirst Time is to take you through the formative steps of some of the brilliant minds we have in the craft beer industry today. Starting from that first sip of beer that changed everything. Today's guests are Dan and Martha, owners and founders of St. Mars of the Desert. Oh, and they're the brewers. And the packaging assistants. And the taproom staff. And the label designers. And the labelers of each individual can. And the sales team. And every other job that it takes to run a brewery and a taproom. Basically, Dan and Martha are nuts. But also two of the funniest, self-confessed, quirkiest and incredibly hard-working individuals in this here BSE. Now, St. Mars are relatively new to the UK, but they have been at this beer game way longer than their young lifespan would suggest. In fact, Dan was probably throwing hops in beer as I was taking my first steps. Their beers possess a character that carries through to their artwork and their beautiful tap room in Sheffield. They wouldn't be out of place in a small rustic village in the depths of Belgium's countryside. Before they came back to the UK, they had set up a notorious and renowned brewery called Pretty Things in Boston, Massachusetts. They left a mark there and a community that still misses them years later. And that is a testament to what they must have achieved there. Luckily enough, we now have them here and that is something to be celebrated. So. Dan and Martha are basically a storybook of craft beer. Uh, this episode could have been way longer, but we have to save some for next time. So, let's get started. We begin, as we do every episode, by asking what that first beer was for them. Yeah. This was a long time before mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this because I listened to the first episode with Anthony and and I had, I probably did have a first beer that got me into, into craft beer, but I had probably a more important beer that kept me in craft beer because it was a period of time in the mid-90s when even though I, I, I became a head brewer, which was a dream of mine, I was really getting bored and kind mm-hmm. of didn't, didn't enjoy it anymore. Um, and I just didn't think there was much to it after all. <laughs> Uh, for whatever the dream, reason the dream was dying yeah it just seemed a bit dull like i was going to be making you know uh, amber ale and just chucking a new ingredient into beer all the time you know it's just it just was a bore and um i went to a shop and i bought ur beer by dodola which is a beer i'm i'm still uh there's many years later still talking about um and I I bought it based on the label art because mm-hmm. it was so different from what was going on in the U.S. at the time, which was a lot of historical figures, <laughs> and it was a, it was really sort of dorky middle aged looking scene at the time. And then you look at Dodola, and it just reminded me of sort of like this funky um, modern sort of nineteen uh, seventies vibe to the oh, to the wow. label uh, like a Joan Miro or Juan Miro however you pronounce um did it just did it on the shelf did it just look totally different to anything else that was there at that time it did it looked totally different it looked totally dusty <laughs> it looked totally <laughs> expensive um uh, it looks unwanted um which are all the things i love about beer yeah <laughs> and um and, and i bought it I brought it home, I uh, drank it, and I assumed the beer that was in that bottle, it was so brilliant, I assumed it was a mistake. Like nobody could have planned for this. Yeah. Uh, and that turned into a, a very cheap and quick visit to Belgium to go to this brewery and to see if it was a mistake or not. And what I saw there changed how I about beer and sort of tied in with things that I had thought before all the boringness you know settled in all the boredom said <laughs> settled in um, was it the connection that people were having with the breweries and the kind of like authenticity that came with that in Belgium that really lured you in or was it something totally different well, no it was this sort of one dude 
in a ramshackle old 19, you know, 1840s brewery. He wasn't, um, he wasn't so much a, an obvious brewer. He didn't go to trade shows and, mm-hmm. you know, talk about, um, you know, flow rates. He was more of an artist and his brewery was, was magical, but it was also kind of disgusting in a lot of ways. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there was, it, as soon as I walked through the doors, I knew I could smell the beer. I could smell wow. what I thought was a mistake. And I know what the components of those things are now. Um, but it was, it was that you could be creative. Um, you could, there, that beer wasn't to any style. He called it the, sort of the original beer. He, he used the brewery he had. He went and grabbed some yeast from another local brewery at the time. And he made this beer that blew my mind. And he put a stupid label on it. And then here it was, you know, in Boston uh, on That's a shelf. crazy. Uh, you know? And when I would talk to him, the whole, nothing, nothing made sense about it. Um, you know, he only did 800 hectoliters a year. And, um, he, was happy, he was living a happy life and with, his, with his wife, both working in the tap room and children and things. And uh, that became sort of the model for the perfect situation, perfect brewery, even with all of its weird imperfections. And really, if you look at what we've done here at SMOD, that all of those little things have made their way into what we've tried to do. Yeah, I mean, your brewery is, you say all these things that are like, this makes total sense. Um, yours wasn't disgusting, though. No. Yours wasn't. Uh, yours was very, <laughs> very hygienic and very clean. Um, oh man, there's so much yeah. I want to kind of dive in there and and ask you. But Martha, let's go to to your story of, of connection. I feel like mine's very quick and easy after all that. Sorry, try. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so I grew up obviously in Yorkshire, and I was just drinking, you know, how you do when you're young, just mm-hmm. I was drinking whatever everyone else was drinking. And, and I was a beer drinker and I drank cask beer, I drank lager, I drank whatever everyone was drinking, but I never thought about it. And then really my, so my moment was, was after I met Dan in America. Um, and I didn't know what craft beer was. I didn't think, you know, wow. I thought beer was beer. So suddenly I was like, I went out with this brewer, met this brewer, we met at a real ale festival. Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna ask that at some point. Like, so yeah, how did you actually guys come to come to me? So it was a real ale event. Yeah, they have this festival every year in Somerville, which is just outside Boston. And um, so I went there because I knew it would have British beer, and I was missing that. Um, <laughs> but I, I still haven't got into craft beer. I've lived there maybe a year, but I've been I've been drinking sort of harpoon, which I suppose is craft beer, but it's fairly run of the mill, just what everyone drinks. So it was after I met Dan, and we he started taking me to these bars uh, in Boston, like proper beer bars. And really, like a beer bar is an American invention. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And like, I still feel like they haven't quite made it over here yet. No. Like a bar where you can have absolute dedication to all different types of beer. Um, and I would just, I was totally overwhelmed. I was like, we'd only been out a few times, so I was trying to act cool. <laughs> and I would get these massive beer lists. And I would just choose like randomly and try and make it look like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and I remember getting a beer called Zatterby, which is a Belgian beer. Yeah. And it, you know, it came, it was a whole bunch in the little bottle, the beautiful hand-drawn label, proper glassware. And I just remember that moment being like, this isn't anything to do with the beer that I grew up drinking. This is completely different. I love this. It's artful. It's creative. I love the label. And just being like, oh, this is r- really fun, and there's a lot more going on here than uh, than I was thinking before. Oh man, that that feeling of walking into a bar when you didn't know you don't know what you're gonna get, and there's so many different beers is such an exciting thing. And I guess at that time, yeah, a, a rarity. But maybe, I, well, I'm speaking totally out of turn here because what was Boston's kind of beer scene like at that time? Uh... It was like established big big craft beer breweries like Harpoon so mm-hmm. they were like supermarket craft beer was definitely a thing but then I feel like it hadn't like the sort of real craft beer like very creative 
including yeah, that hadn't happened that yet. Hadn't happened yet. We got sort of the late nineties were really bad in Boston for um, craft beer. It all went away, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, there was there was this growing um, and I think nationally important um, cocktail scene, and um, you know beer seemed dorky. And, you know, as I said, as I was saying a few years earlier, I think it was actually dorky. It was like <laughs> um, And um, I, uh, I, I think around 2001, something sort of changed and uh, breweries were coming in from out of state and doing really well, and really well in Boston and in Massachusetts. And um, we uh, suffer in Boston, we suffer from things being very expensive. So to open a brewery, just getting that building, you're, that's your first million or something. You know, like wow. that is, it's very expensive. So breweries weren't opening up. The banks didn't see breweries as a viable thing. So what we were really um, into at the time were really strong beers. Um, I think a lot of Belgian stuff, you were getting it fresh because fresher uh, or in a good shape anyway, because people were drinking it and spending the money on it. People were getting into uh, having the right glassware for beers. And then um, there would be a small amount of local beers happening, but um, less than probably is, is going on now. Um, in terms of beer bars, there was like, there was Adam Carter. Where else did we used to get? Oh, Sunset Grill. So there were a few beer bars. And were they Grill focused? Just... Were they focused quite like uh, American-based brew- beers, or was there a lot of Belgium import stuff? There's was... a lot of English, like beers, beers that you won't drink, you wouldn't drink here. Like <laughs> you know, you like your kegs of Watney's Red Barrel and things oh, like my that. Days. But we, we, you know, but we all thought it was it was good beer. <laughs> we, you know, we we thought it was meant to be good. So like. You know, we would you'd get pints of Newcastle brown ale and stuff like that, just not knowing. But you know, to the, in the early days of of craft beer, you know, we were emulating stuff like that because mm-hmm. we didn't have anything that was brown or red or amber in color in in America. You know, so um, we were excited to to see that, and I I think part of what American or craft beer became was sort of emulating these European beers and Americans just being totally naive, doing it completely wrong and sort of making our own thing along the way. You know, we, we thought all beer was all malt. So whenever we saw dark beer, we tried to do it with um, dark malts. Just a hundred percent dark malts. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime you see color, you're almost always getting some kind of sugar, right? And then often in English brews, um, there's always a pot of some dark liquid in the back of a of a European brewery that is where they're getting the color from. But we didn't know that, so um, it's super malty. Yeah, like super malty. Doubles. Like this is our double, and it's like, oh, it's kind of a stout, uh, but <laughs> you know. Yeah. But this and this time is really because it's so funny, like talking about the British beer scene. Because I guess it, we did have a craft beer scene. Like we're both from Yorkshire. Uh, and there was breweries that were small scale doing like just best bitters or blondes or something like that. And I guess I didn't really take into account that that was craft beer as such, but it is, it's small scale yeah. production. Um, so you were right at that kind of the precipice, I guess the, the real start of the American beer scene over there done, which is now it feels just like this huge culture that, has swept the whole every state and has multiple tap rooms everywhere and then has kind of come back to England and reignited the beer debate if you know what I mean yeah it's crazy I used to dream about you know what we're doing you know back in those early days being interesting or or maybe last or lasting you know I do remember a lot of situations where you know people would spit out your beer or they (laughs) You know, or, you know, or whatever, you know, like, you, you know, it's just, it seems like it was never going to actually catch on. And what, um, can you, can you like give us a kind of time frame of when this is? Like how long ago? So a lot, of, so in the nineties, I would say right up to about 98, um, 
we were we were primarily making the beers our bosses told us to make. Mm-hmm. Um, people would go to bars and say things like, oh, I want to drink a local beer or something like this. What do you have that's like a bass ale? Um, whether or not that person ever had had a bass ale, I don't know, but that's, they didn't have any points of reference. So they didn't, they didn't say, well, what's your, what's your hazy IPA? You know, there was none of that. It, so we were all kind of like um, people might take a sh- a chance on a beer, but breweries would see other breweries success and immediately just sort of copy that. And there's nothing new about that. And it's still going on, obviously, because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we have to, but um, <laughs> you know, these things would spread, spread through craft beer, like wildfire. Like these days it's the kind of the quite interesting things, but back then we would have to do like handful uh, of blueberries. Blue, yeah. Putting blueberries in a pint as you serve that it. That was a huge yeah. thing when I first started drinking. What, in, like in the actual, yeah, and you would get a pint of beer and then the bartender would put a handful of blueberries and then they would, they would bounce up and down because of this. <laughs> they would ride the bubbles up to the top I and mean, then, the, it then was kind of release fun. the bubble and go back down. But you That's were like... incredible. Sort of, yeah, there was a lot of that kind of stuff and there was a lot of um, clear flavor liquids. Um, all those pumpkin ales, you'd make some sort of a orangey beer and you'd a lot of cases I worked for a brewery where um, that time of year they would split the wort. So half of it would be lager yeast to make their Oktoberfest. And then the other half, this clear cinnamon liquid would go in and foul uh, the entire planet. Um, but uh, that, you know, things like that were, uh, you'd have you'd have to do because people are looking for some sort of a gimmick to to sell yeah, the beer. Yeah, super novelty. For for those of us who who were into it, who got into it from watching like the Beer Hunter series, which if you talk to an American of my age, everybody talks about it because uh, we had never even imagined this world that was out there, and we were looking at old styles, dark old copper breweries. You know, and instead we, you know, we had to uh, make, you know, blueberry beer with, uh, you know, dorky labels. That's how, that's how bad it seems to me now, but, you know. And so that, that was, that was the kind of, I, I guess that all of that culminated in you almost losing touch with what you wanted to do as a brewer and, and yeah, as a creative yeah. person. It sounds so novelty and just kind of like <laughs> hilarious. The idea of someone dropping blueberries in your in your drink as you're drinking it. Um, and Martha, well, what, I'll tell you what. Go. We would go to beer festivals, and there would be lines of like 400 people to get blueberry beer. And you know, I I would be sat there with what I thought were great beers that you know, like a, a like a, a Hellas and a IPA and a Wee Heavy, and you know, there'd be there'd be this line around the block for these blueberry beers. Really fun. <laughs> it's definitely evolved because there's definite beers that have kind of changed, you know, there's the soft serve, like Omnipolo kind of stuff, which is pretty, I don't want to say it's gimmicky because that sounds negative, but it's, it's, it's something different that's done with beer that has a kind of theatrical element to it, I guess, that people mm-hmm. really want to be a part of and it entices them. Um. Yeah. But yeah, Martha, what kind of, so when you, you met Dan, obviously at this festival, was then it, was it just a kind of total exploration into all these new beers? Was it something that you got excited about quite immediately or was it quite a gradual process? Uh, no, it was quite immediate. Cause like, if you're going to hang out with Dan Packett, you're basically, <laughs> that's all you're talking about and that's all you're doing. <laughs> so it had to be. And luckily I, you know, I'm an was exciting already, man. Yeah. <laughs> That or maybe, you know, some obscure 1960s bands. So, like, I'd rather do beer. Um, so, yeah, so I was already a beer drinker, and thank heavens for that. I was already interested in it. And um, I did love, like, Yorkshire brewing, and I did love, like, my bitter, and I loved cast beer. So that was a good, because this was a cast festival, you were into brewing cask as well, weren't you, at that yeah, time? Yeah. Oh, wow. Dan, he loves history of beer, so the first time we came to England together, we went around to the Eastern's Brewery. Oh, amazing. You know, it's sort of, it is quite similar, actually, to some of the Belgian breweries. It's about the same period and similar layout, gravity yeah, yeah. brewery and all that. Anyway, so, yeah, I had to get, like, right in there. <laughs> and also, the other thing about that festival is I met, at the same time as I met Dan, I met, like, 
my entire so- new social circle because <laughs> it was all like the other brewers and all bartenders, like everybody was there. It was kind of like industry night or yeah. something. Yeah. So um, I basically walked into a new life then and I, I'm still living it. <laughs> wow. And because yeah. in the introduction to this, uh, this like project, I was just thinking about how interesting it is. And you definitely sprang to mind, Martha, because your walk of life is you went on a total tangent. You were probably right at the top of your profession. So for those that don't know, you you were, can I, I know you still, Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You, you, you went from Cambridge to Harvard to MIT. So yeah. I, I, as far as sciences go, that's pretty much the golden ticket. Yeah, and now I scrub floors in the brewery. <laughs> but so I like it's so that. amazing so you so yeah within that again in that introduction i was like seeing people become so passionate about something that leads them to take that step out into the dark i guess and how, what was that transition for you when when did you decide to put the or walk away from the microscope and walk into a brewery it was a little bit gradual so obviously, like all of my free time became beer related when I started going out with Dan and we got married. But I definitely still wanted a scientific career at that point. And then it was it was after we went back to America and we started Pretty Things. And I knew that I would have to help, but I never it never occurred to me that I would end up being hard. Joe, wasn't it just sort of gradually like I just found myself in the lab running an experiment? And that, but then mostly designing a new label. <laughs> um, so science is great for that, actually. If anybody needs two careers, do science and brewing because um, you have the time while you're waiting for a virus to grow or whatever. You have an hour to go and find do some do some label. brewery work, <laughs> and uh, it's fine because nobody. Fine. But helpfully, your boss. Oh, that's true. My yeah. boss did become an astronaut, which was really good timing. <laughs> like she segued out of the lab into being an astronaut and I segued out of the lab and into being a brewer so yeah I just think that we should just like just have a moment there to just the Martha did just say her boss became an astronaut and you told me the that's like absolutely insane you, is that the one who yeah. you told me about who turned up in a to the bar in, in at MIT or something in a, a NASA uniform and was like oh I don't want to freak people out that's yeah, just she incredible was Thirty year old Mac and she walked into the bar to meet us. She was like, I just flew here, but I didn't want everyone to see my badge. <laughs> she took off her dirty Mac and she was wearing a NASA flight suit. She me. flew from Houston in a supersonic jet. Because <laughs> you have to learn how there's two things astronauts have to learn immediately. How to fly supersonic jets and Russian. <laughs> <laughs> Now, in the intro, I mentioned about Dan and Martha starting Pretty Things in Boston, Massachusetts, a brewery that really garnered a lot of attention right from the off and still is missed by the East Coast beer scene. And we got loads of messages on our Instagram about it when we did a brew with them. Uh, I wish I'd have dug in a little bit more to how it came to end, but I totally forgot to ask that question and got a little bit lost. But here it is, the beginning the story of pretty things um so yeah you you kind of alluded there to was the was the first real project of yours to come to life pretty things um the first one that we did together yeah, yeah. dan had a brand before he met me called rapscallion which mm-hmm. was like his baby, but he never quite owned it, and it all ended up. <laughs> Everything that could go wrong went wrong. That was my that was my first ass cooking. Um, oh, I, t- I think I remember you telling me this over a beer, but can you just give us a little a little short and condensed version of what happened with that? Basically, yeah, basically, um, I wanted to open a brewery but didn't have any money, and and after a series of of. Uh, of investors who who weren't really all that into it um i went into a brewery that had just failed and one of the brewers had bought the banknote on this thing over the phone um and we decided to make this 
this Rapscallion, which is what I've been wanting to do, which is going to be a sour beer brewery originally. Uh, we didn't quite do that. Um, but to make a long story short, we got evicted from two, brewer- from two locations. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, I think it was... I think it was uh, the second. The second one, I was actually living in the brewery, <laughs> um, so that wasn't. That was especially bad for me, and um, and uh, it didn't get better after that. So um, then, I'm, it's not too long after, I thought my career was over, and then uh, it just it rose from the ashes. And then, I, then, I, then I met Martha. It was just. It was like that quick. So wow. it was shortly after yeah. that that we met. Yeah, you, man, there's so many stories. I don't think we're going to be able to condense everything into into this hour. But um, let's pick up with with Pretty Things, because that was the first time that you guys had kind of joined forces on a project that is still, like when we've done collaborations with you guys and uh, put up stuff on our Instagram, there was we've, uh, quite a few comments of people just being like, we miss Pretty Things. Um, and I know that a lot of brewers over in, on the East Coast especially, um, still talk about it. So I wonder if you could kind of just dive in a little to to what to what happened with Pretty Things, how it came to be, and what your focus was as a brewery. So um, we moved back to America because Dan didn't like being a Yorkshire brewer. So we lived here for a couple of years, <laughs> and he was like, "This isn't for me. There's not enough glamour." <laughs> Martha's making all of this up, but that's <laughs> all right. True, I, I don't. That's I, true. No. Anyway, we moved back to Boston, um, and I got a job. To support us and basically we had so we have eight grand yeah we had eight grand we had eight grand left and i was like right we either get a bed and a sofa or you go and brew some beer so uh, i was like be quick because i really want a sofa <laughs> yeah. but we didn't get the sofa i think we probably found one on the street yeah and uh, Austin christmas dan Austin. went off and he found a brewery and mm. they had spare capacity so he basically went in and brewed a batch of beer and put it in a tank it was jackdaw it took ages to ferment the yeast like crapped out and we had to wait months and yeah put champagne yeast in it and i was like great you threw, <laughs> threw our money away. yeah it was nearly it was nearly nothing and then eventually it fermented down and it tasted pretty good and we went i remember spending a whole day labeling hand labeling hand bottling everything didn't we and yeah it was grim stinky old brewery yeah it was but we got it to the market and you know, I honestly, I think we both thought it would be a good way for Dan to get like back into the industry so he could like take this to people and be like, here's my beer, I'm a good brewer, give me a job. But instead, it all sold and we were like, well, we'll just keep making it. Yeah. And that was the beginning of it. And we just very slowly, we never got any money from anywhere else. We just very slowly grew the brand, didn't we? Yeah, it was one of those things where um, we always seemed to be out of beer and because we're waiting for the money to trickle back. And when you're in a several tier system, it does take a long time for the money to actually come back to the brewery. We had to wait for that money to brew another batch. This gave people the the misconception that we were somehow sought after and successful. <laughs> so it, it's another trick. Yeah. It's a good trick. Um, Brilliant. And, strategy. Yeah. Uh, so um, as, as that went, um, I couldn't believe we couldn't believe that um, it was growing because I remember sitting down and having a long, hard think about all of the possible outlets to sell this beer in. I, I think I came up with 13, 13 places I thought would buy the beer. <laughs> so yeah, it's crazy because we ended up with 800 accounts by the yeah, time we wow. closed it. We had 800 accounts just in Massachusetts. Yeah, that's insane. So just you, like, we were very lucky. It was a very good timing. I think there was real interest like proper like mainstream interest at that time just starting to happen yeah. in craft and for those, beers, Belgian beers, Saison. And for those that don't know, Jack Doe is, is a Saison. So was that yeah. a kind of revolutionary style at that time on the East Coast? Was anyone else doing that? Or? No so, one was doing them on any... Yeah, there was Irma Gang that was doing Hennepin. But they were doing Hennepin. They call that a grisette. Uh, Southampton, which was Phil Markowski, where he was at the time, they did uh, a suit Saison, a super Saison. No one did one as a flagship beer. No one did them full time. Uh, no one called it a saison and, and had it as a flagship beer and did it full time. There was in the early days of 
of when people were thinking about saison, it was all about spices for some reason. It was about throwing lots of spices in. And <clears throat> the book that Phil Markowski wrote where, uh, and Yvonne uh, from De La Seine does the forward in, became very influential in America in general because it basically said, you know, Cezanne is kind of uh, pale, dry, and anything, anything you want it to be, that sort of thing. So pale, dry, hoppy beer uh, with uh, interesting yeast strains sort of thing, uh, that's what we did. And uh, we drew a, a crazy label that people didn't know what God was a lemon with a mustache and all this stuff. <laughs> and I thought, you know, we we called pretty things. We're sort of the antithesis of uh, of all the de demons and you're not yes. worthies and beards and everything at the time. So we kind of uh, we're a bit Mary Poppins when everybody wanted like punk uh, punk uh, devils, you know. So it we it, it was meant to be memorable, so that when we quickly went out of business, people would be like, "Oh, I remember that." weird beer, you know, and, and that would be at the top of my resume, you know, so, but, um, yeah, we were with a small distributor, the, the Shelton brothers who are an importer that I think people know here a bit. Yeah. They had a huge now. Yeah. They had a small distribution company called La Resistance and we were with La Resistance and then they sold us to a big, uh, basically uh, Budweiser distributor <laughs> and you and just people, you go, you People, I've tried to kind of like say this because we've done a couple of interviews with American brewers, but like distributors own you when you like, yeah. you were sold to another distributor who then yeah. have power over your brand, which just feels insane. It feels crazy. And obviously trying to be creative and uh, the artist that you are, Dan and Martha, um, must have been pretty hard to deal with. Well, it's, it is weird. I mean, it, this does happen. I mean, uh, certainly bands have record labels mm -hmm. and, um, you know, people who are professional athletes get traded back and forth and are, are owned in some way. Um, so there are some good sides to that. One is your reach is amazing when you're going through a distributor that has 4,000 accounts in the state. That's true. Um, you know, do the, do the, do the personalities necessarily uh, mix in a, in a great way? No, not all the time. Um, they have a different way of selling things um, than, than we, we would. We would yeah. And um, it wasn't the worst thing. I think we, we wrote it for a while. It was just interesting learning like how this whole thing works. Cause I had always been with self distributed breweries and we were always getting whacked all over the place by these big distributors. <laughs> so, uh, so here we were like inside, you know, the, 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 uh, the four walls of this machine. And uh, yeah. It, it definitely worked for us. I think, you know, if we hadn't been sold to that big company, we wouldn't have been as successful as we were. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Basically, yeah. I guess I haven't seen, I haven't really thought about that side of things. Like you say, you're, a two-man band brewing beer and labeling bottles, going out and getting accounts isn't the the thing that you can. That's it. You know what I mean? So if someone comes along with four thousand accounts and goes, right, we can get your beer into all these places, that becomes yeah. a huge benefit. The problem is, you know, they they would have something like eight hundred breweries in their book, and they would have breweries that they're really pushing. They had different sections where you would see these lists, and they were actually, uh, you know, they are actually. Uh, yeah actively pushing other brands so right. you it's so easy to, to it would have been really easy to get lost in their book that's what you call it yeah. so you can be sold as a brand as like we were sold as one of many brands that were sold at the same time to with cantillon and you know other ones <laughs> not too bad crazy. yeah not too bad neighbors yeah. we, we because we were local and we knew people and we worked really hard we rose to the top of their book and they were so shocked i'll never forget yeah. i used to have one meeting a year with them and they really thought they would never see us again. When they bought us, they were like, fine, whatever. I wore a three-piece tweed suit to the first meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible, but, Dan. But yeah, 
so after a year of selling us, we went, we were like summoned in to the office. This smells like a gym locker, you know, <laughs> it's all, it's all dudes. And um, the guy sat down, he was like, I am humbled. <laughs> I'm humbled by your success. Because he was like, I never would have guessed it. And like, now you're like our number one 22 ounce bottle. So, <laughs> and he, he was like, couldn't believe it. Like, so why, what, what, what happened? What, what like engaged people so much? Was it just a totally well, different style or was it everything? Your total, your artwork and. Saison had a moment and we were right there. We were ready with it and we were there. I think people hadn't really seen something that crazily artistic on the shelf before and it, it leapt out at that time because apart from that it was like word art labels and <laughs> you know patriots and yeah, yeah like very basic graphics ships a lot of ships yeah. yeah so i think those are two massive things and then we were out there drinking every night like we really did go out every single night to sell our beer didn't we yeah yeah we did so, lots of uh, handshaking and things like that but the other thing is, you know, they, the way that distributors work is they put on promotions, they push hard, they do events. They're not used to getting a brewery in that does its own, uh, creates its own pull. You know, when you have real pull out there, you don't need to do anything but take orders. And so that's kind of how that was. And because they were able to, do, to sell this to all of their accounts, it was, it was, good, for, it was good for all of us. Um, and you know, uh, it, it, we would never want to go back into that world, but it, it was, it was interesting. And I didn't realize this, but wasn't, um, was it purely contract brewing that you were doing at Pretty Things? Did you ever actually get your own brewery or was it no, always? Brewery, no, no. We, we did all the labor for brew day, but, um, but we never owned a brewery. Yeah. Yeah. No one ever, no one ever brewed a drop of our beer that wasn't a pack cat or yeah. hobby pack. It was us, <laughs> but um, you know the way that it w- way that it worked. It was a uh, it was a it was a brewery and a farm down uh, on the south coast of Massachusetts, and uh, we would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and get in the car, and we'd go and we would uh, brew uh, basically a uh, hundred barrels in a day. Man, you guys have never been shy of incredibly hard work i think it's <laughs> I, when i when i first got involved in uh in working with like sam and and there was another brewery at the time as well i was you know i think as a drinker you might have a lot of romanticism about what it is to brew a beer or like what because it's just this great product that you can enjoy at the end of the day this that and the other and then seeing it firsthand i was like whoa this is not there is no romance here this is like <laughs> 15 hours yeah. um but you guys have just been this like little team that you've you've carried this forward for so long, and and Saint Mars is exactly the same. You guys work on the tap room, and brew beer, and label the cans, mm-hmm. and design the cans. And I wondered what um what it is that is is that what you've always wanted it to be? Just you guys carrying it forward. Have you ever had the desire to have a bigger team and and almost like an expansionist kind of mindset? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know why, but I think we, we've we always been happiest, just the two of us. We did have a, we had uh, staff, employees uh, for Pretty Things, and we really loved them. And they were, they were like family, but they were sort of sales events. Nobody ever helped in the brewery. It was very difficult. Like it would have been difficult to bring in another brewer because we already didn't own the brewery, so it would have felt very strange. I think we did talk to them about that, didn't we? And we were like, yeah. this won't work, let's just yeah. keep going. Um, but yeah, I don't know, I'm, I'm a bit of a control freak, and I, I don't think either of us is a good boss, are we? I think no, our, our employees would tell co- you that. We were we're not good co-workers, bosses. we're not good bosses, we're not good employees. I'm just like, let's go to the pub. <laughs> are we done here? <laughs> but so, also for me, like, how many breweries in the world can you think of where um, – you know the name of the head brewer and the head brewer is the person that you see interviewed in the articles. I mean, you can name them, I think on one, one hand in, in a lot of cases, there is that one person, but they don't brew anymore. They, mm-hmm. you know, all that other stuff. I love this idea of a true, uh, uh, you know, when you, when you have a 
winery, there's a winemaker and everybody knows, you know, that sort of project. And if you have a team and I don't have any problem problems with the idea of teams, I, your brewery, for instance, is just loaded with insanely talented people who probably could go and spread out in every direction and, and be part of other great breweries or have great breweries of their own. Um, but for us, you know, we just, uh, you know, we have our own one particular little dream um, and we like to be able to use our ideas, our foibles, our... Uh, yeah, I think we're so, we're so quirky. I think, like, we're sort of un- just unconventional by nature. Like, that's something that I've really learned about myself through, through my brewing journey. Through many hours of just you two, just like, we are crazy here. Yeah, we are. Like, we just are. We're just not like normal people. And um, so it's just much, safe, feels much safer to me and much easier if I can make my crazy decisions and nobody else is going to suffer. And also... <laughs> and I can do it, you know? But we're, we're like a collaboration together already. So yeah, we really true. do clash often on... We often do. On <laughs> labels, recipes, what we're brewing. Why we're brewing it. I, I can't have one more of those in this, com- in this <laughs> company. <laughs> if you don't get someone, they just need to toe the line. Agree with you. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it works. It just works. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so, you know, I would like to have bar staff. We do want people to come in and help. We do We're like so people. Tired. We actually We're like so people. Tired. Yeah. But, we'll be hiring <laughs> Yeah. Anyone that needs a bar shift in Sheffield, yes. get these guys up. But I think that what you just said there really is translated in your beers. Like when we came over, to we came over for our Christmas party to to you guys, um, mm-hmm. and I think Matt had spoken to you at a beer festival or something. But yeah. I was just totally, totally. It's rare that you ever. Everyone is drinking beer styles, and there's a lot of crossover. And it's rare that you ever get like a brewery that just has such a certain taste to them, where you can feel like something different to what's been done elsewhere. I'm trying to, a characteristic, just a characteristic of each beer that feels, yeah, feels so intrinsic to, to the people that brew it. Um, and I mean, that is not just translated through the beer, but it's translated through the artwork and it's translated through the incredible space that you guys have as a tap room, um, which has got a little wood burner in it. And I was just, it was the most little, like little romantic place in Sheffield. Yeah. Um, and I it's thought, like a cabin out in the middle of nowhere, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, it was so great. And yeah, it blew me away. And I mean, just if we can dive in a bit to the actual way that you guys brew, because you brew in a kind of, I don't know if you call it unconventional. Like to me, it was unconventional. You use a cool ship to, to put your first like hops in. And I just wonder yeah. how you got to the process that you, you've got to. So nothing's ever planned properly in our, in our lives, I think. So basically, when we decided to build a brewery, we had the money from Pretty Things. So that's why it's so small, because we didn't have that much money. <laughs> <laughs> so we built the brewery we could afford, but there were a few things that like, I knew Dan really wanted. So Cool Ship was really... I sort of said to Dan, like, just build your brewery. Like Christ's sake. Yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, just do it. You did. You said that. Um, because, because he's only going to get one. Like, you know, we're, I'm only giving him all my money once to build a brewery. <laughs> <laughs> so he better be right. But he should just have what he wants. So I knew there was going to be a cool ship. And then there were limitations in terms of, like, boilers and what we could afford. So, yeah. so we couldn't have, like, big fancy... Um, lager system, for example, could we? Which you would have liked that. I too. would have, yeah, I would have had a decoction, yeah, Casper yeah, Schultz sort of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That wasn't happening. So, so the cool ship was was you know that, that's not expensive piece of equipment. We really wanted it, so that was definitely going to be in there. But then, of course, there's no whirlpool in our brew house mm-hmm. because of the way it all worked with the boiler and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. It just made it was just like a logical like that makes total sense to do a hot, basically a hot stand right in the cool ship. But we had the summer before when we were still sort of bumming around trying to build a brewery. <laughs> we we did a collaboration with um, a couple of Brooklyn breweries and uh, in Franconia at Gunstallerbrau with Andreas. Wow! And he he has a big big copper cool ship there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if you look at, I have a blog up uh, about cool ships or flat coolers uh, up on our website right now. If you look at it, there's quite a few pictures of his there. But he spread all pellet hops in, in his cool ship. And um, so that was that was on the top of my mind. And that first visit to, to Dodola in 1996, um, I, I talked to him about his cool ship and he explained about hops in the cool ship. So it, that has always been there, this idea of uh, having a cool ship and, and using it in the traditional, in the traditional sense. Um, traditionally though, there would have been a hop back to filter all of the stuff that was all of the protein and, and whatnot coming out of the kettle in between these, this step. And then the wort would have come in there for a, a brief time. Um, anyway, we're doing it like that. We're doing it like <laughs> that. We've built a basket now. So we kind of have a hop back just, just as the wort's going in. Uh, and then we spun. We spent money on Hansman spunding valves because um, we wanted to make lager. If you go to Germany, they all have these yeah. three-bar tanks with with spunding. Yeah. So yeah, we have three-bar uh, rated uh, fermenters, uh, which I think are tested up to like eight bar, something crazy like that. So they're quite expensive. Um, you know, we just we built the dimensions on that. We have a port for um, for dry hopping. So we love. We just did it this morning. We we dry hop and then we close it up for spunding right right then and there. So nice uh, carbonation from that. Um, and then we have a bright beer tank that was designed after we were we were involved in the early days of uh, the Spencer Trappist Brewery planning in Massachusetts and. When I saw their bright tank, and I think their bright tank was modeled after um, Chimay, it has a paddle in it, it has a variable speed paddle for doing bottle refermented beer. So I had to have one of those. <laughs> um, that was a mistake. That was <laughs> actually a mistake. <laughs> really wish we hadn't done that. But never mind. Now that we're canning, it's totally in the way. We can't. Oh, we can't. We can't. In the wrong place. We can't cool in a way, in a very efficient way, but it's all right. Whatever. Yeah. So you guys have been, so you mentioned Germany there, and I know that you've done some pretty cool trips to Germany and Belgium. So there's two, there's a real sense of tradition and rusticness to both these places. And yeah. is that what attracts you to beer? Just that kind of like wholehearted feel rather than the, I don't know, people can get really attracted to, recipe development on certain ways i wanted to be brew big hoppy dry hop things like east coast ipas but you guys seem to have a real bedding in in old traditional rustic brewing yeah yeah definitely i think um that is absolutely true um <laughs> to an extreme extent with me when when i was a when i was a little kid um we had this cottage that was sort of on the the, the sort of this rat run into uh, from the shops to to a lake and back in the 70s when 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 early 70s this would have been um people used to not just drink and drive but drink while they were driving <laughs> um and they would there was this little piece of wooded area next to our cottage and they would throw beer cans from their cars into this and every morning I would go out for like the new crop. I was like three or four years old and I would go out and I was fascinated. I would pick up these cans. And I would collect them. I was fascinated by them. Um, and I would see all of the brands that were just barely in business at that stage. Like the breweries were probably closing left and right. You know, your holes and your half and raffer and your, like there's so many brands I saw from, from I experienced as a young child, not at all interested in beer, but that, put me into this idea that there are other breweries out there and some of them will have, you know, they would have big mustachio German guys on the front of some of these cans, you know, like it was very old school in a way that, you know, by the time I was of drinking age or pre-drinking age, which is, you know, whatever high school drinking age, um, you know, it was all about like, you know, uh, sexy ladies fighting over beers and things <laughs> like that. It was light beer and all that. But, um, and, and then the Jackson series, and then um, early on in my career, you know, we 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 couldn't get beers um, 
for instance, the only ever GABF medal I ever won was in 97, and it was for Schwarz beer. No way. Um, had I ever had a, tasted a Schwarz beer? No. Um, but this is what we used to do. Have the judges? No. Probably, <laughs> probably not. Obviously had that but, uh, before. But what, uh, what I used to do is I would go through books and I would look at pictures and these pictures would, you know, there'd be a pretzel in front of the glass, you know, like <laughs> and there'd be like a horse drawn carriage and then the brewery in the back. And th that sort of imagery, as opposed to like the world I was in, which was, you know, wearing fleece, fleece brewery <laughs> branded things with your name, Bob etched here. That, you know, that was the world, you know, a world I was in. So I've always wanted more of the old stuff. I wanted old, strong, stinky, hoppy beer. <laughs> you with know what character. I mean? With like huge amounts of character to them. Huge amounts of character. And they don't always have to be the positive characters. <laughs> <laughs> they can be sulfur. They can be butyric. They can be all of those things. And I'm still as I'm really into that. Oh man, I, you made me remember a story that uh, I can't remember who told it me, but they went to Belgium and uh, was it Phantom? I think it was Phantom that they went to and the guy was brewing and it was like open flame boils and just this, he'd never seen anything like it and he was boiling away and he was like, oh, do you want to go get some lunch? And he was like, but aren't you, you're brewing, aren't you? And he was like, ah, we'll just leave it for a bit. And then they just went and they went and had like three or four beers and then just went back to the brewery. And it was just, it was just nowhere near the kind of precision that you would, uh, you know, walk into a brewery probably in the UK or America now. It was total yeah. just like a guy having a great time, brewing his own beers, um, yeah. drinking at lunchtime. That's it. It's a cultural product. It is, yeah. yeah. It's more about necessity than it is about finesse. But you end up with some great subtleties in there, don't you? Yeah, like how are we going to get those characters back in beer? You can't go to a craft brewers conference and come away with a, your, a notebook filled with this. Yeah, so, well, you've got you've got Jackdaw, which was the first beer you produced it. Um, pretty things by the sound of it which i didn't know um and you're still producing that and how sort of, yeah we are is, we it are. is it a total different iteration than it was at the start is it changed yeah. massively yeah dan loves to change a beer though like never think that just because it's got the same name and it's <laughs> never is we're always tweaking up beers we always used to be quite unashamed about that because if we're making them better it's okay right it's yeah better but yeah what? No, that's just a, that is a, a massive point. Is um, is oh, forget, no, it. forget it. it, forget <laughs> it. No, let's forget it. Yeah, forget that it. was that was going to be the <laughs> people. People say it's all about making the same beer over and over and over again. That's fine when breweries had two hundred years to make mistakes mm -hmm. to get to that great beer, but breweries are just opening and they're expected to make the same beer a second time. So I think it should be more about you, there's a there's a quality certain quality, a, you know, a level of quality, and we will we will meet or exceed that every time. Yeah. I think that is that is what you should be doing. You shouldn't rather, be apologising for making a beer better, should you? You're like, oh, I'm, yeah, that's it, that's it. Consistency, it, not necessarily quality to be valued. Yeah, time. and I just can't I can't believe that you guys ever want to be bored doing what you're doing. So if that gives you excitement and that's what you want to do, that's what you're going to do. You don't have to answer to anyone else. That yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> you are yeah. your own bosses. That's too short. That's too short. Someone else can make the same beer over. So, I, you know, fair enough, fair enough, yeah. I wouldn't mind making one beer over and over again, strangely enough. <laughs> yeah, on, the, on the flip side of that, it just sounds kind of appealing. Oh, now yeah. I'm starting to see why you have no employees. This is just, just a total yes. <laughs> change. So this next bit is a little bit of an experiment as we try and do a new section. And because we love terrible puns, this bit is called Where Do We Go From Beer? The sentiment and the aim is to just get a little bit of scope of how people see the beer industry moving, whether that's on a production level or even a political level. So here we go for the very first Where Do We Go From Beer? Where do you see, you know, five years down the line, on a, maybe on a production side or as just a brewery's entity, what 
what place do you see beer in in the future? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we always, you know, <laughs> amongst ourselves, we're always waiting for lager to come back, like proper, well-made lager. And I think the, the barrier to that is that there's so much cheap lager and people who classify themselves as lager drinkers probably wouldn't even enjoy uh, a very traditionally brewed, um, arduously made lager. So that's like a barrier, and I. But I'm sure one day we're going to break that down. I'm sure one <laughs> it's day coming it's coming yeah. will be a thing. Um, and it, you know, it, it happens, doesn't it, in niches? And like we can sell a lager, but it's a, it's a bit of a battle, isn't it? So yeah, that's yeah. one thing that I would love to see. Like if I could choose something, <clears throat> I would love to see us all drinking out of steins in five years <laughs> in the UK. Amazing. Yeah. I love that Keller Pills. Uh, Lost and grounded. Yeah, yeah. lost and yeah. grounded, yeah. Um, Do you feel pretty similar, Dan, on that front? Yeah, I don't... You know, the funny thing is, is like, one, one of the... One of the... Uh, one of the things I hear on a weekly basis from people is, well, you know, the IPA is going to go away some someday. It's got to, it's got to. And I've been hearing that since the early 90s. Um, and... You know the beers aren't any hoppier now, really. They're just the know, they're, are added at a different yeah, time. they're added at a different time, and um, I think there's more knowledge about hops these days by brewers, and people are very, very savvy about how, what characteristics they're getting out of them and how they're storing and things like that. Um, so I don't think things will change all that much in terms of uh, what the breweries are. Uh, Making, I think it's always going to be hoppy beer, mostly mm-hmm. hoppy beer. But um, hopefully, we'll see it open up from like at the moment. I would say craft beer, especially in the UK, is still very much a niche market, and it's really progressed in America to become something very normal and mainstream now. And I think that will be. I think we will see that happen, and it will be really positive mm-hmm. because it'll mean that you don't have to like shock people to <laughs> to sell a beer, which I almost feel like. In the UK craft beer market, you kind of need to shock people to sell a new yeah. beer. And that's a ridiculous place to be because I want to have a nice beer <laughs> when I go home. <laughs> so I would love to see, um, I don't want to use the word mainstream. I don't know what the right word is, but just like you don't have to have the crazily most hoppy, most hazy, most solid looking beer. You can actually have something that's really approachable for loads of people mm-hmm. um, that is still a really well-made craft. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it feels like that's, it's definitely sits, I mean, you know, you walk into a supermarket now and there's the beer offering has grown a lot in the last year or so. And a lot of like smaller brewers getting picked up to be put on the shelves. Um, yeah. So I guess that, do you see that as a positive thing or do you see it as a, a kind of negative thing? I think it's positive because people need to be exposed to these, you know, in the U.S., there's a lot of brands that there's brands always growing, always going out into every possible um, nook and cranny, you know, going into supermarkets or going on airlines. It's all helped, you know. Um, and it makes life more fun. Like we should never forget beer is fun. Like when you're selling beer, what you're selling people is fun. And like, so getting people off like things that aren't fun, like beers that aren't fun and having them drink something that's maybe more locally made is supporting somebody's, family down the street instead of some big company like, there's so many positive things to that yeah. aren't there it's it's an easy win for everybody just have yeah, a bit 100%. of fun drink, drink a fun beer <laughs> there are a couple of things i would love to see though in the future if it could happen one is more refrigeration on the on the shop yeah. side yeah yeah uh, and the other would be um multi-packs four packs six packs <laughs> um, it's hard selling beer one can at a time <laughs> yeah I mean, especially you guys are like a two people operation. We were selling like single cans at the start and we just couldn't do it. We just couldn't keep up with it. Like the, the labor like was just too much, but you know, you do get a lot of people that write in and say, uh, I just want one kind of that and one kind of that. And you're like, I understand, but we've got <laughs> our hands are bleeding here. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you again kind of like 
moved around that point of the US market to the UK market. And I wondered if you could just kind of point out, because you, you've you done both of the, these things, which is pretty rare again for breweries. So I wondered if you could point out the positives that you're seeing in the UK market and also the kind of negatives that have, have been really hard for you to, to deal with. Um, I think one negative for me is just still how niche it is here. And like there's, there's much less diversity in the beer drinking audience in the mm-hmm. UK compared to the US. So in the US, like right from the get-go, so Pretty Things, we started in 2008, didn't we? So right, even back right then, there were loads of women drinking craft beer, really interested in craft beer. It wasn't seen as a dude thing. Um, Here, there's not that many women who are into it, and I'd love to see more women come in and drink our beers. Mm -hmm. Um, What else? Just diversity in general. Be nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. it feels very apt at this time. Like the, the the British beer scene is not very diverse at all. If you go to a beer festival and you look out, it's it's pretty much white middle-aged guys. <laughs> like that's that's it. And I think we had this conversation, especially you were saying that like there was a lot of women who were really big fans of, of pretty things. And you were kind of mm-hmm. quite shocked when you came and just realized that there was just not the same uh, attitude yeah. over here. Or maybe yeah. just people just hadn't really delved into it as much. I don't know. That's it. I mean, it's all. I think it's all waiting to happen. I don't think there's any reason why British women shouldn't enjoy a nice beer too. Mm. <laughs> I think it's it'll just happen. so much more healthy for the whole scene when on a Saturday a husband and wife or boyfriend girlfriend can go off and be into the same thing. Yeah. Um, and it's a great hobby is beer travel, beer drinking, going from tap room to tap room, all this kind of stuff. Um, and it it here and I love it. It's totally unique. Um, is are these train these train guys? <laughs> where you get like eight pals. They might have gone to college together back in the mid seventies. Yeah, <laughs> they, they get on a train and they they choose a city, one city a month, and they they've got about thirty places to go. And <laughs> by yeah, God, they're hopefully you're not the end of that that journey. So it's like get them at the start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been on the bottom five a few times, but they're yeah. great. But um. We do. I think taproom culture is an interesting one as well, isn't it? Because taproom culture is something that happened during our time in America, towards yeah. the end of it, really. And now it dominates. Like yeah. now, breweries sell, like small breweries, basically sell all of their beer on site in their taprooms and shops. Um, which is there's good and bad things to that, but certainly I think we'll see more of that in the UK. I hope we do because I think mm. taprooms are just fun, and oh, I, I like it's just a bit more low pressure environment than going to a pub. I think sort of anything goes and we have like families at ours. Yeah. I love it when families come in and run around, you know, the kids run around. Everywhere. It's just good, isn't it? It's more uh, egalitarian. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, you're coming to it. It accentuates the brewery. You know, some people come to our place and they, they want to treat it like a pub. And I said, it's not a pub. It's like, imagine you're going to a winery. You would, you, you know, I would, I'm not the biggest wine drinker in the world. I don't really know what wine is. Uh, <laughs> but when I go to a winery, I drink wine. I don't ask for a, do you, sir and madam, do you have a DuPont wine <laughs> um, But um, uh, so when people, when people come in and they realize they're, they're going to a factory that happens to be open to, to, sell, to sell beer, it's, uh, I think, uh, it's a fun thing and people really like to do it. People are really upset that we're not open right now. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think we're, we're nearing the end of this thing. So I didn't give you pre, prior warning to this, but I'm excited to see what your choices are here, but it's oh basically, so you've got one, one last beer, anything you want. It could have been made before. It might not have ne- ever been made. You could brew it yourself, or it could be uh, a brewery that's produced something that you've really enjoyed. What's that beer going to be? Well, I, I've said in an in interview before, I have a 1968 Hardee's. And that 1968 was the year I was born. So my plan was to drink it while I was dying. It's death fed beer. But the last one I'll enjoy, not just sort of throw it down my throat while I'm dying. Uh, <laughs> I like the, um, Xander. Xander. Uh, 
Monk uh, Monksenbacher. Monksenbacher. Yeah. It's a brewery in a village called Monksenbacher. I was probably saying that wrong in Franconia. And they make the most incredible hellas. Oh. And um, I think often with these magical beer experiences, it's all about context, isn't it? It's not mm-hmm. just the beer. It is a phenomenally good beer. But we go there with friends. You sit outside. The mother of the – so I think it's, a, it's definitely a family, the head brewer. Or no, he's not the head brewer. But the, the dad is, like, in charge of the brewing side. Yeah. And then I've, I've never seen the mum. But his mum uh, taps the cask. And they basically, every morning, about 10 o'clock, they, you know, they get a fresh one out and she taps it, just like tapping a cask. Here. Sort of, yeah. Um, and you can go in and watch this happen and then wow. she just starts And you just take it outside and you sit under a tree and it's just the most fabulous yeah, place. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. So that would be great. Yeah, you can have eight of them. You're quite happy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I never thought with that question that there'd actually be a literal uh, deathbed beer, but thanks for dropping that one, Dan. That was incredible. I've got to, I've got to put that out where I can find it. So thanks for reminding me. <laughs> if you just need to grab it in, last, in your last day <laughs> in seconds. <laughs> but you'll be happy to know as well, Martha, that this is, I think this is the the fifth interview I've done and speaking to everyone about where they want beer to move to, uh, they always say lagers. I think on a brewer's side, everyone wants to produce lagers. I know that Matt, our head brewer, loves lagers and loves producing them, but, you know, for one reason or another, they're not the most financially viable thing to produce at the moment. And that's where it kind of comes in pretty hard. Yes. But you guys are still, you're still doing good because I feel like you're so important to the, the beer scene over here. So we, we don't want you to go anywhere. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. We're doing all right. We were worried for a few days though, weren't we, at the beginning? Yeah. We had yeah. a batch of beer that we were like, this isn't going to work now. But no, we've done all right. We've had to, we've had to adapt quickly, open a web shop, can everything. We're still hand labeling, so it's oh. total nightmare. Um, we're, we're getting the last batch of hand labeling though we're doing yeah now. we've bought a labeling sheet so. luckily yeah. you guys aren't scared of hard work either so you've been doing it you've been doing it for years anyway so so we'll what, be working till we die you don't have a choice you gotta do you gotta do it <laughs> that's a good point actually <laughs> maybe that you can't stop yeah, no way. i was just thinking yeah. then dan maybe that that bottled beer needs to be in the brewery somewhere because that that's probably where you're gonna that's a good point <laughs> maybe i'll put it in a holster yeah. <laughs> and that's it thanks so much for listening again i hope you enjoyed that one i basically did that interview with a smile permanently attached to my face dan and martha are such a great company i wish i could have done it in person and i can't wait to see those guys again for a beer and if you can and you're local or even close by or when this thing blows over Get yourselves over to that tap room. It's such a beautiful space and the beers are incredible as well. Um, Thanks again. And if you feel like you want to leave a review or even drop us a comment with your first times, I'm going to start trying to read them out on each show. So thank you. And until next time, stay thirsty.